It's February 24, 2022, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lees, and I'm your host. The Frontier Center for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow. We are an independent and nonpartisan policy think tank, and our topic today is what is Canada's energy policy? And specifically, what are the policies of the Trudeau government and select provinces on energy policy? And what are the implications on you, Canadians? And we'll also be taking a dive into some very interesting current events with our guest. And I want to introduce him to you. Without further ado, he comes with a rich background. The Honourable Dan Mateig is an 18-year veteran of the Federal House of Commons and is nationally known for his tireless work on energy pricing and saving Canadians through accurate uh, price forecasts. Mr. Mateig was a member of the Liberal Party of Canada and was the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. As President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, Dan is committed to improving energy affordability for Canadians and for promoting the many benefits of the oil and gas industry. Welcome, Dan Mateig. A pleasure. Great to be here, David, especially on a day like today where uh, energy is finally and deservedly so uh, now right front and center in the minds of everyone. Well, Um, that is the understatement of the year, Dan, as it seems like the world has got so many moving parts in play. And I just can hardly wait to dive into this discussion with you. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So, Dan, I want to ask you a quick question to set the stage about who you are. You served in many elected roles. You were a Liberal insider for years, in fact. Why did you run for, as an elected official? Well, look, I, my, uh, I can trace my origins to the Liberal Party to 1978, working for a fellow named Paul Cosgrove. I thought it was a great time. I kind of like the perspective that uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau had uh, with respect to the Constitution. I was a young 15, 16-year-old, uh, thought that this was the... Uh, this was the party that represented a more balanced approach. Um, certainly didn't have the trappings of other parties uh, based on ideology. Uh, it was more of a pragmatic party. And I think at the time I was always looking for the big tent consensus building party. And over the years from 1978, 79, 80, 84, 86, federal and provincial elections uh, was uh, active in the trenches, knocking on doors, uh, you know, uh, licking stamps, licking envelopes, uh, putting up signs. And then of course, uh, the much harder stuff of actually managing campaigns 10 years later for several uh, members of parliament and uh, and ministers, uh, provincial and federal. And so uh, my evolution in the party uh, didn't come overnight. Uh, it didn't happen by circumstance. It happened uh, uh, more as I grew within the party that I thought ideologically, uh, at least uh, sunk with some of my values and views. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why up until 2014, I was very comfortable with the Liberal Party, uh, despite its warts, uh, despite its faults, uh, despite uh, good and bad leadership. I always thought this was the uh, uh, the best party uh, to represent Canadians' interests from coast to coast. Very good. And just a, a point of fact, uh, your riding for many years was essentially Oshawa Pickering, as I recall. Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, uh, Uxbridge, uh, Scarborough East, and uh, so everything really from the GTA from Toronto all the way up to Oshawa. So uh, that little area in between, best known as the 905 and known as Ontario County, Ontario Riding, uh, which we named the province in 1867. Right. Very good. So today you are the president of a well-known organization, Canadians for Affordable Energy. 
Uh, many Canadians know that you're on the media. I think you do like uh, an unbelievable number of interviews every day, um, including, I, I, you told me, uh, 40, 42 to date, uh, including, does that include this one? Uh, no, it doesn't. So. Okay. <laughs> so we're up to 42 then. Yep. Um, so they, they know you about your analytic skills, your commentary about uh, energy gas prices. Can you tell us more about what is uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy about? We're really a nonprofit. Uh, the idea has sort of come to many of us who've worked in uh, the field of energy and uh, helping consumers that there had to actually be a voice that could uh, impartially look at uh, public policy at a time in which there seems to be a, a concerted attack by my Liberal Party, but others as well, on Canada's energy sector. Uh, and that's twofold. One against hydrocarbons, oil and gas, which uh, are really a bounty for this country. And even uh, on suppressing the fact that Canada has a significant value in terms of clean energy long before it was trendy. Uh, things like, for instance, in my own riding, the Pickering nuclear reactors, the first commercial reactors in North right. America. The can-do program. Exactly. And of course, you know, even before that, the hydro projects at uh, Niagara Falls and other places are very well known for. So it, it is, you know, very much uh, part and parcel of who we are as a country. It creates the environment, uh, not just of affordability, but attractiveness that Canada has such an eclectic, diverse menu of energy options that the world would give its right arm for. Yeah. And yet we seem to find ourselves with many of our politicians uh, of all political stripes at all levels, spending more time taking pot shots at something that is so vital uh, to our national identity. It really is. So let's just pick up on that. So strategically, if you looked at the landscape, why is energy policy so important? And, and if indeed, as you've alluded to, really an ace card for the country? Well, it's not just for Canadians' sake, it's our ability to export, uh, and not just export, but export uh, some of the, you know, the highest standards, uh, the best practices, as it were. You mentioned CANDU earlier. I mean, there is little doubt that when Canadian technology on the energy front, and many others, of course, do, is introduced, it is not just something for which the world recognizes us for. It's also something that the world desperately needs. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to make a bit strong argument about that now. We're short of oil, and yet Canada has an abundance, the third largest reserves and yet we find ourselves, of course, not just importing that oil, but uh, suffering. And I would expect the word tolerating those internationally funded organizations and many outsiders uh, trying to block the very thing that makes us not only unique as a country and diverse as a country in terms of our menus, but also wealthy. Our revenue is all at, uh, at stake and very much at risk. So, and so this all for very, very policy... Sorry, what was that, Dan? I, I apologize. And, and all for suspicious reasons. I, you know, the, the, the green climate uh, agenda, I think, has uh, gone into overdrive and has become a far greater monstrosity than anyone had possibly bargained uh, for. And so uh, I think now, of course, there is greater perspective that uh, maybe it's time to tone those things down. Okay, so we want to get into that. Um, so to be clear, though, the cornerstone to energy policy in Canada has been many things, including affordability, reliability, dependability. And it's been a remarkable asset to our country. And in, in many ways, um, so many nations around the world would die for Canada's position uh, in terms of energy. Uh, it just goes on and on. So you've alluded to the change in those policies. We're doing a 180 now away from that affordability um, policy. What is going on? Why are we moving 
from an affordable energy superpower to expensive energy everywhere we turn? What, what, what is going on? What, what are the policies that are changing this? Well, I think Canadians have been lulled into the sense that somehow they're responsible for, you know, environmental outcomes of which really amount to uh, odd, uh, bizarre, uh, situational day-by-day weather patterns. It sounds ironic, but those who are pushing this narrative are doing so on the assumption that any change in weather, which they call climate, uh, and uh, they don't use those words interchangeably, but they ought to, is somehow responsible the result of human-induced behavior. Okay, so so there's a quote climate change crisis. So that's why we're getting this cascade of of policies that are going to radically change energies uh, our, our energy policy. Correct. That's the bottom line. They are, but they're not. They're not. They're they're pernicious to Canada and pernicious and, and unfair. Uh, yeah. We are a clean country, and as I mentioned earlier, developed and pioneered a lot of clean energy, uh, and we get no credit for that. But they are extraordinarily devastating to a country right. which far more reliable on energy, uh, given our climate. Yeah. Well, and I think what, what what's also fascinating about that, that framework that you outlined, Dan, is that even if Canada came to an end, e.g. there was no economic activity, even in terms of the, um, the climate models that have been tabled, it wouldn't even make a difference anyways. So well, no, and, and it's really based on only one form of, uh, of molecule, CO2. Right. Uh, we're not talking about the panoply of uh, environmental issues dealing with uh, with air pollution, uh, uh, water pollution, uh, land pollution, soil pollution, uh, or for that matter, uh, you know, emissions in general, your knocks, your socks, things that we've done extraordinarily well in, yeah. but which we get, again, no credit for. Exactly. So if if you can help us go through some of these policies, um, I'm thinking of carbon taxes, the net zero by 2050 movement and even ESG in a moment. But is that is that the corner of the change in energy policies, those ones you mentioned? Well, I think it is predicated on the idea that somehow Canada is, uh, you know, is a laggard and it doesn't do its job. And uh, these things will eventually create, uh, you know, enormous damage to uh, the future uh, of our of our weather and our climate or whatever, however you want to call it. Uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily disingenuous, but it has been pervasive and no one has actually stood up to it. For the longest time, uh, these environmental grifters, call them what they are, get money from the government to lecture the government. Uh, or even know, other foundations. Foundations, so-called, I'm sorry, charities, charities that, uh, charities that uh, you know, escape any type of scrutiny because their mission as a charity is, is anything but. You know, we now find ourselves really in the grips uh, of perhaps years of indoctrination that suggests that somehow we can wish these things away. Now, we've seen experience in that. I'm not going to go beyond the Canadian example, but here's what's happened in Europe, thinking that we could wish these things away and replace them with, uh, you know, renewables, uh, electric vehicles, uh, solar panels, and of course, uh, windmills. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're inefficient, unreliable, and at the end of the day, only cause countries like uh, uh, Germany to go down the road of burning more coal. Right. So we've seen over the years, really, um, and I, many Canadians would be shocked to know that we've seen for many years really incisively organized campaigns, well-funded to really bring a close to the energy industry in Canada, particularly oil and gas, um, and also to move policies forward, such as carbon taxes. So are you in favor of carbon tax policy? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> no, of course, I think carbon tax policies are ridiculous. Um, you want to incentivize uh, uh, lower emissions uh, through taxation, through other policies, as well as uh, just good corporate behavior. You don't have to hammer consumers with that and create an inflationary spiral, the likes of which we're now experiencing. Okay, so, so just to clarify, Dan, you're against carbon taxes Absolutely. because they end up getting paid by who? Canadians? Consumers. Consumers. And if they're inflationary, they don't go back to Canadians. And a lot of it is, of course, used by governments to pay for the kind of uh, green grifting that we're seeing, right. uh, not just in terms of, you know, who gets the money, but more importantly, you know, things like the HST, GST are not remitted. Okay. Uh, and they, they, do, uh, they, they do put us at a competitive disadvantage with the rest of the world. Okay. So they're, they're bad public policy. They hurt consumers. They're not net revenue neutral, are they? Well, no, they're not. Uh, and the government's admitted so. Uh, and in many parts of the country, your province uh, doesn't even rebate them, even if they they were to do so. But imagine a policy that says, hey, uh, we're going to uh, tax you, but we're going to give you a rebate. Uh, what's the point? What's, what is the purpose of this exercise other than to uh, create not a signal, but a distortion? And the distortion is now becoming replete uh, as it's uh, confused with other forms of Taxation, the clean fuel standard, which of course you have in your province, no other province has, has that, and for which no economists, including William Nordhaus, who won a Nobel Prize on carbon pricing, would say the last thing you do is confuse the price signal of a carbon tax with another carbon tax exactly. with more regulations. So, look, don't take my word for it. When your own uh, cheerleaders, and they happen to be smart academic cheerleaders, mm -hmm. Uh, make these kind of statements. Maybe someone in Ottawa in the Liberal, Green, or NDP party uh, should, uh, as a tautology, uh, right. should should pay attention. Yeah, and I, I think that's where people don't realize is that the whole world of carbon ta taxes and that that back policy discussion has long been debunked as nonsense, and yet our politicians are still waving the flag for carbon taxes, even yeah. though it's not based on any rational uh, thinking. So let's talk about net zero. What is to the layperson, Dan? What is net zero all about? When somebody talks about that, it, it sounds like an endless recording. Net zero, what is it? Well, it's the balance. It's creating uh, you know, an environment where you are capturing or you are reducing your amount of carbon output to the point where those who are producing carbon uh, are do not exceed those who are somehow finding a way to diminish it uh, or to take it away. It's basically a, a calculus in which you can say at the end of the day, yeah, we're producing some emissions of carbon and it's only carbon, uh, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we're employing technologies and practices uh, that take it away on the other. What it actually means though is a lot of consumers are going to be forced to uh, do without in, in practical terms, turn down your, uh, your your heater, your water heater, the heat you need for in the winter, wear an extra five layers of sweaters, uh, eat less, uh, you know, sort of like the uh, stuff we've heard from, uh, you know, uh, the WEF and that group. Yeah, no, it, it's truly absurd. So Let's get down to kind of a practical level then, Dan, in terms of its impact on Canadians. If we look at these kinds of policies, I mean, you live this world um, minute by minute as you discuss this with so many Canadians, but um, what's going to be the impact on your personal budget? Can you give us some scenarios uh, as you fill up your tank and as you heat your home? I don't particularly want to wear additional sweaters as much as I like them, but what, what are we to expect? Is it going to be like... Um, you know, the, the kind of scenarios that we've seen in, in the UK or in other parts of Europe where 
for uh, you know people on fixed incomes are making horrible decisions between food or heating their home and and even their health. That's very real, and it's now extraordinarily real in in Europe, and it's now part of why Vladimir Putin is apparently going to take a, a next country or two or three with impunity, because we've spent so significantly amount of time trying to find ways to shut down our ability to protect ourselves. And Europe has done this, you know, masterfully over the past 30 years, spending trillions of dollars for windmills that will not produce enough energy and, and uh, uh, you know, storage facilities that can't, uh, you know, uh, make up the difference. I think what we're looking at here in Canada is, is something along that line and a lot of uh, wishful thinking. Many of us believe that uh, uh, it's okay to have a carbon tax on every form of fuel that will go up uh, an additional 30 to 40 cents a liter, uh, representing a hit to about 30 to 40 cents a liter. liter. Yeah, of of diesel and gasoline. Uh, That's uh, both carbon tax one. So as it goes from right now, $40 a a ton, all the way up to $170 a ton, it's 8.84 cents a liter times 4.4. Two. So yeah, that's 32 cents a liter in and of it, 35 cents a liter in and of itself without the GST or HST, depending on where you are in my province, 13% uh, here in Ontario. Uh, and then we have the clean fuel standard. The clean fuel standard is based on the carbon credit market. And the carbon credit market right now, is, according to the BC government's own uh, figures, which I saw last month, was $486 a, a credit. That's about 17 cents a liter. So over and above that 35 cents, another 17 cents. And what does it do economically? Well, it drives industry, makes the cost of living that much more expensive, well beyond the rebate. Uh, and of course, as we know, the clean fuel standard won't be rebated. What it does is it creates massive distortions uh, and uh, a, a regime, a future that looks most, most uncertain and highly unaffordable for most Canadians okay, so at the same time destroying growth. So if you're looking at your personal budget, and, and I know that uh, we take statistics very seriously, but if we look at kind of averages, this is going to impact your household income in the tune of several thousand dollars. It's not just a hundred dollars, right? No. So natural gas, oil, uh, heating oil uh, that we're seeing in the maritime provinces, all of these things. Now there are exemptions. The government's, uh, we pursued uh, the government heavily on what it's doing to Atlantic Canada. All four Atlantic provinces came together and said no to the clean fuel standard. Amazing. Got very little way in the press because the press doesn't like to talk about the errors of, uh, of these things, but what it really means is a, uh, a direct hit to consumers uh, in the order of a couple of thousand dollars a year uh, at a time in which many budgets are strained. And there are, is an indirect impact. Discouraging investments and in capital coming into Canada, which was an issue for the National Bank and others very recently that pointed out that Canada continues to become less and less attractive for capital, although lately that may have turned around, but only slightly so and very temporarily so, uh, leads to a weaker Canadian dollar. And every commodity that we use in this country, whether we like it or not, whether it's made here or not, is priced based on the US greenback. If the Canadian dollar at a time when we're seeing $90 oil is still 128 pennies or trading at a 28% discount to the US greenback versus eight years ago, when it was almost on par, you can see where that's adding, for instance, 15, 16 cents a liter of gasoline. So here we have the direct taxes on Canadians most of which, and a lot of which are not rebated, driving out investments, creating, you know, as it were, carbon leakage. And then you have the indirect that no economist wants to talk about. Let's talk the Canadian dollar, because when I make my predictions every day, I have to make sure that I look at the Canadian dollar and it just leaves me aghast 
that it is uh, the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about, yeah. and it's weak because we've 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 attacked the oil and gas sector in this country. We're not attractive. Exactly. So that is a very powerful summation as you connect those dots between the life every day of a Canadian and how they're going to pay much much more, but at the same time we have a perfect storm of other economic variables that are going to hit Canadians hard in terms of inflation. Um, you've mentioned the dollar, all those cascading effects, and of course, um, job opportunities in the form of economic growth and productivity. So it's all interrelated. And I don't mean to try to give an economic, yeah. lesson, but the point is that this is, you can, you're illustrating powerfully the importance, the, the significance of energy policy, aren't you? Well, it, it is. It's it's a cornerstone. There isn't a single thing that we touch or do that doesn't have oil and gas involved. And I, you know, I, this may come as a surprise to some of the teachers and others who continue to profess this nonsense. But it's 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 lazy, uh, it's factually lazy, and it's hypocritical uh, to be attacking the very thing that gives us the sustenance as an economy and as as as, as humans. It has improved the human condition right. more so, so in Canada than anywhere else. It, it is really disturbing. You know, it's amazing when you talk about the public discussion i think you know we've had a very cold winter in canada yet again um as we look at uh, very low temperatures across the country particularly the prairies no less but we've had uh i know that we've had even elected officials that were called winnipeg lobbying to get rid of natural gas <laughs> same in ontario the, incredible yeah likewise right across the country i mean it's absurd it's like so where is that coming from you you and i both know these different actors what What's going on? They just simply, do they actually believe their own um, basic lack of understanding here? Of, of Well, yeah, they're, they're bamboozling people into believing that somehow there are alternatives. Yes, Manitoba may have hydroelectric power, but that hydroelectric power uh, does not replace uh, the, the the plastics, the styrenes, the asphalt, the uh, uh, you know uh, the polymers, the resins that go into building an electric vehicle. Uh, nor does it uh, nor does it take away the need uh, for processing, high processing of these products. I mean, we can talk about that we can improve improve ourselves this way and that way. And I think that's that's laudable. Yeah, but it is being done as if we can substitute, and you cannot substitute. It is scientifically proven that these things cannot work. And if you want to disturb, you know, several thousand tons of the Earth's crust in order to create a battery, which will simply be disposed of after seven to 10 years, made in a part of the world like China, where there is no governance. Look, I, I think we have to be very careful. What we need to strive for is balance. But what we have is one-sided uh, views uh, that says fossil fuel is bad and uh, anything other than that is good. And yet, practically speaking, show me one thing that you can produce other than cutting down burning wood for energy that doesn't use and have a major input of hydrocarbons. And I will show you uh, someone who either is delusional or is lying. And I think that's the problem is that we have, unfortunately, we have scientists trying to pretend they're politicians and politicians trying to ape scientists. Either way, it comes down to political demagoguery and it's coming at the expense of the Canadian economy, which is losing ground, like well, it or not. I, I think that's well said, um, Dan. Um, I want to talk briefly about ESG, and I know that I do that with trepidation because it's so involved, but the environmental social governance movement, kind of a, a downstream movement from social, socially responsible investing from years ago, is kind of on steroids these days. I look at you know, the well-known advocates like the CEO of BlackRock, no less managing, what is it, up to $8 trillion now at, at BlackRock, Larry Fink 
We've yep. got even our own Mark Carney, for, former Bank of Governor, um, and also of uh, the England as well, advocating at Brookfield for this movement. Are you concerned about it? I'm concerned about it, but I'm also thinking they're looking rather silly these days, aren't they? You know, when oil has reached as high as it has, primarily because woke capitalists have decided that they're going to throttle the very essence of our economy and our way of life. They somehow believe we can wish these things away and live in this, you know, this imaginary world of magic and make-believe. Um, the reality is that it comes down to the bottom line. They're not doing so damn well, are they, on their ESG investments? You think about it, uh, they're doing damn poor. Among the lowest performing uh, stocks and equities happens to be the green techs, which cannot exist without massive government subsidies and uh, people like them that uh, try to push this stuff around. Obviously, there's an angle for them, and it is an altruistic Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's both. I think we, we need to expose these guys for what they are. They're phonies and they're dangerous. Yeah. Good for you. So there's there's a combination of, um, dare I say, ideologues, but people that are kind of greenwashing their products and trying to get them out the door. And and uh, I think we ask need to ask major major questions around this. So let's turn to green energy. Is it green when we think of uh, the windmills and and so forth? What what's the short answer on that, Dan? Yeah, tell me one that doesn't involve, uh, you know, massive uses of hydrocarbons and some of it responsibly if it's made in Canada. But talk to me about the carbon footprints and uh, the damage to the environment for your battery, for your rare earth minerals. Uh, talk to me about the uh, extraction and process for lithium. Talk to me about the young children in the Democratic Republic of the Congo who died due to toxic dust as they mine with their hands the cobalt so we can virtue signal with our EVs. I'm very clear about this. Canada does a damn good job on an ESG, especially on social and governance, and we're working damn hard on the environmental. But for people to turn around and somehow think, well, I'm driving an EV or I have a solar panel, I simply say to them, you're part of the problem. Yeah. And you ought to yourself. Well said. No, exactly. Like it, it, It's kind of a game here. And we need to do the proper, with integrity, the 360 view of all energy sources. And uh, we should be very proud of the kind of energy that we produce in, in the country. I that bit gets me to my next question about leadership. I Four years ago, I would never have believed it, uh, the appointment of the federal minister that we have now, um, given their radical background of climbing up towers. And of course, I'm for peaceful protest. I'd be at the front of the line. But how would you, would you ever believe just four years ago that you'd have now a radical environmentalists in the chair uh, trying to destroy in many ways our energy industry. Well, I'm not surprised with Justin Trudeau. I had to sit with him for three or four years. Um, hmm. I, I'm going to try to be as uh, polite as I can, but if people really knew the person they're supporting, I'm not surprised that he brings in people like that cabinet. In fact, two of his ministers, top ministers, are people that uh, got there because of my work in, in helping them become members of parliament. I wouldn't let them near the levers of power, much less permit them uh, to go hog wild on the Canadian economy. So if we want to have, you know, the asylum run by its proverbial inmates, I cannot think of a better example than putting Stephen Guibault in charge of uh, that portfolio and then having his uh, former colleague, uh, Jonathan, uh, his name escapes me right now, uh, <laughs> Wilkinson uh, put in the uh, natural resources energy portfolio. If you just don't like the you know energy sector and you want to get rid of Canada's most lucrative 
gener- you know, uh, revenue generating sector, by all means, keep doing this. Oh, wow. But it shows the extent to which Justin Trudeau is willing to destroy this industry and with it, the country. And I'm an Easterner and I'm okay. a liberal. So, so I just want to be really clear because I think many Canadians would be shocked to hear this. So given the constellation of policies and given your knowledge of the leadership here, like you've worked with these people, you're not surprised that the train's coming, working hard to shut down the oil and gas industry in Canada, period. No, not at all. But I think what shocks me is Canadians' willingness to go along with this nonsense uh, and uh, to go along with a group of people who I fundamentally believe to be incapable of making rational decisions on behalf of the country. You know, all the smart people uh, were there well before 2014, but even within his own cabinet, he's lost great people who I had had a lot of respect for. Uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould, you know, Mark Garneau, they're all gone. And there's a, and of course, uh, you know, uh, Ralph Goodale gone for whatever reason, but the reality is what you're left with is uh, pretty much an empty bucket. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. Um, so very, very sad to hear that. So we, we have a different liberal party. Is that what you're saying? Like it's not the liberal years, party. We, we had it's a liberal, liberal party, party that was very much <laughs> for governing with prosperity, Dan, we, we, you were part of it. You were there uh, trying to lead the country responsibly, both fiscally. We had John Cretchen and Mr. Martin uh, slay the deficit dragon, among other things. Um, we, you know, there, there was a prosperity agenda to serve Canadians. That's not this liberal party. Is that what you're saying? No, it's not the liberal party at all. It's a party that is really based on virtue signaling on identity politics. Uh, it is really based on other factors, you know, significant, uh, matters that uh, have very little to do with the essence of, uh, of a diverse country, diverse in region, diverse in opinion, uh, diverse in idea, and diverse in energy. I mean, there's the great thing about this country is bringing disparate views together. This guy goes into every single debate we've had in this country and throws a grenade in there and leaves Canadians sooner or later all feeling significantly disenfranchised from what it is to be a Canadian. Wow. So I want to get back to some of those themes specifically, including the emergency lockdowns, no less. But when we look strategically, like you, you've, you can look through this uh, politically, uh, and I mean this in nonpartisan ways, but why did the Liberal Party make the big shift to the radical left in this way? Like why, what, what is your theory on this? Well, look, it started with Stefan Zion, the green shift. Uh, I was their consumer guy, their energy guy. And uh, I can remember full well, you know, in the 2008 election, energy prices spiked 15, 16 cents a liter. And I had, uh, you know, the prime minister, Stephen Harper and his gang really on uh, on the ropes over the issue of uh, why Canadians are paying more for something that happened elsewhere around the world. And yet my party turned around and said, no, no, no. Canadians should get used to $5 a liter for gasoline. I mean, he, he, this kind of nonsense, which basically says to people, you're wrong, your behavior is wrong, therefore you ought to pay more, is the kind of top-down arrogance that I think cost the Liberal Party party ultimately its status virtually as a party in 2011. It has only recovered because of the name Trudeau and because there's been a coalescence of international involvement, organizations that have come in uh, and influenced our our political uh, discourse to the extent to which Canadians, I think, are confused, bamboozled, but also, to a large extent, been able to rely on a strong economy up until now. So, you know, they didn't have to worry about our politicians and the games they were playing right. up until they have to pay the price, well, which and, is what they're doing. And arguably cheap money. 
well, yeah, actually, my, get, get, line, line up, folks. The banks are willing to buy any anything you want uh, at bargain basement prices with the yeah. Bank of Canada uh, standing behind it. Monetary, modern monetary theory is going to go down as one of the biggest mistakes this country has ever made. And anybody who thinks that isn't the case has to talk, look at their kids, as I will have to, and my grandchildren, and say to them, uh, I made a mistake here. And uh, I ensure that your future is going to be less pros- prosperous than mine. Yeah, so we're headed for... Um that kind of uh, reckoning as we look to uh, quote modern monetary theory and <laughs> endless uh, deficits and ever-growing debts. So just to pick up on that theme, so we have a party that is um, more ideologically on the left. Uh, you describe it as, as having that hubris or arrogance, uh, but we also have a party that is um, very intent on, I, I guess what I'm I'm concerned about is this ever set of of policy that that isn't really based on kind of evidence and practical plans like i think pragmatism has been one of our brilliant points as canadians to rule our country our government and 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 we're losing that so why would they take the risk of alienating deeply and 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 shutting down a, a vibrant healthy middle class in canada like why 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 would you do that politically you know, I'm not, I often wonder who's pulling the strings for these folks, because at the end of all of this, they may make a big deal about the fact that uh, they actually care about Canadians. But, you know, I think it really comes down to who can make the strongest argument uh, that will shame Canadians into believing that somehow the way in which we con- conduct ourselves and behaved is bad. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, the Great Depression in this country, people like my father literally starved. There was no, the cupboards were bare. And it wasn't that long ago that we had massive and out of control inflation and, and debts that uh, could not be paid. We're at that same juncture. And I'm not saying about the starvation things, no. but I think we have pretty much despoiled the hard work of you know, the, a generation before in terms of ensuring that we had uh, you know, f- fiscal responsibility. We've thrown that out the window in favor of some pie in the sky, you know, jack in the beanstalk type of here's a couple of beans on climate, uh, you know, trade in the farm. And uh, many Canadians are buying the farm on this. And unfortunately, it's going to come to hurt them, especially here in eastern Canada. Yeah, well, so that's a very powerful summation, Dan, because it really is saying that we're blowing our forebears legacy out the door, putting future generations at risk. It's just, anyways, I know it sounds um, like hyperbole, but it really isn't if you look closely. So I want to dive in briefly then about um, a couple big issues. And I I know we've only got a certain amount of time, Mm -hmm. but given your experience and and background, Dan, you're, you're unique, you're a unique voice in the country. Um, So let's talk about peaceful protesters, vaccine mandates and emergency um, acts. What, what's your take on the Emergency Act? Was it necessary? Why, why was it introduced then? Draconian, last minute, uh, band-aid solution, uh, vile, you know, a violent reaction uh, to something that wasn't as serious a problem uh, that could not have been handled by police had there been proper coordination, same way we saw in Coots, uh, Alberta, the same way we saw at Emerson, yeah. uh, same way we saw at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. No, this was about a prime minister who, like the vaccine mandates, weaponized it, politicized it, and then used it to his advantage to create. No, what, what do you mean by weaponizing this? I, I thought it was all health-driven, based on <laughs> yeah. Data well, and I think it's pretty clear that if you uh, if you had any doubts, uh, you were suddenly seen as a right winger. You were seen as a racist. Those are not my comments. Those are the comments of the prime minister. 
that uh, you know you were uh, uh, you're mis- uh, 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 you're engaging in misogyny. What kind of nut bar would make that kind of a statement, except one that here in Toronto and other places they gladly vote for? I can tell you there was a time where a more sophisticated voter in Canada would have taken Justin Trudeau by the seat of the pants, lined him up on the 30-yard line and punted him right through the end zone. But we're dealing with a very unsophisticated group of people who are you know, mesmerized by the TikToks and social media. I don't have a problem with that. I use social media to my advantage and to our advantage to give to inform. But I can tell you for a prime minister to have made those statements and then, of course, refuse to even acknowledge that there was a group of people discontented with the way, feeling very disenfranchised about Canada. In my time, a member of parliament of the government, not necessarily a minister or even the prime minister himself, would have met, showed a little bit of respect and said, all right, look, I know you're there. We don't agree, but at least give them the opportunity. We failed to do that. So right from the get go, he wanted a fight. He wanted to divide and conquer. And of course, that's why he brought the Emergencies Act in, only to reverse it 36 hours after the House of Commons voted for it. What kind of stupidity is running this country? And why do the media buy into this? I mean, like the fact people are upset with them. That's part of the business. You're in media, you're in public life, you're a public uh, influencer. You should be prepared to accept these kind of things as unpleasant as they are. So Dan, I want to pick up on this. So what what are the political implications then on on this government, uh, given that this has just been such a fiasco uh, beginning, Dan? Oh, I think for the Liberals, this is a real problem. He shifted away from the Emergencies Act and uh, nullified it yesterday because I think the polling showing this is uh, doesn't matter where you are. Left and right were upset with him. We saw this. We get about 12 polls a day here. Um, we saw the drop in the polls. So obviously you've got to change the the the, the record here. Uh, I'm sure they're really grateful for Ukraine, by the way, and we'll get to that in a second. But in the meantime, we had a run on financials within different banks. When you go out and you start freezing hundreds of people's of accounts, this has real implications. Can you tell yeah, us sure. about that, Dan? Look at Bitcoin. Look, if, if, yeah, if, exactly. if established banks want to be part of this, uh, as they are with the woke idea on climate and everything like that, they had best be prepared for the backlash because yeah. the public has options. And many people who have a bit of wealth are going to say, no, I'm going to take it somewhere else. You don't want my business. You're not all the same or I'll find another way around it. Look, I think this is coming back to if the country needed one thing tonight, it would be the resignation of Justin Trudeau. I think that would do more to heal than to get us back on the right track. In the meantime, however, we're dealing with a government that is uh, dead set on uh, on dividing Canadians. And that to me is unacceptable. I've struggled as a liberal to make sure that we try to keep this country together, as have many others. And many people fought for these things, including the rights to free speech, no matter how unpleasant it may be. But for this government to have acted the way it did, in such a cavalier way, in such an arrogant way, in such a divisive way in which they put their own political interests ahead of the country, they've lost the moral right to govern, amongst other things. Wow. NDP, what about them? They uh, obviously were whipped into shape so they could avoid an election. What What are the implications on them? What, do, what are you sensing? Look, the NDP should just give up the charade and join the Liberal Party. They're, they're really uh, an appendage of the same thing. Um, some of their members dress better, some dress worse. But generally speaking, I think the NDP has uh, long since lost its uh, its mission. It's no longer agrarian. It's no longer about labor. It's really about uh, virtue signaling. It's really about buttressing Justin Trudeau. Jagmeet Singh is just not a leader. Uh, yeah. What he so, is, so really a huge strategic error. Um, More of a strategic error, I think it demonstrates. And this is where I think other parties, conservative in particular, 
would be wise to say anything the NDP and the Liberals propose, we do not support. Right. As long as they take that, then you give Canadians an option. By the way, Aaron O'Toole, a good friend of mine, had part of my old riding, didn't give people that option last time, especially on carbon taxes. And it's the reason why the Conservatives were so irrelevant. I think as a party, if I were you know, to look at this strategically, I would uh, take the position that they took, punt the carbon tax, speak to people. You may not agree with them, but at the end of the day, don't lessen our freedoms and don't lessen our liberties and do nothing that would injure those things. Exactly. Okay, I can't resist Ukraine. Um, looks like we've got uh, war of sorts in Ukraine with Russia. Um, obviously, that's going to have an impact on energy. Uh, you were the uh, former parliamentary assistant to uh, the Minister of, of, of Foreign Affairs. So what's your observations? What, what's going on here? What's the real story um, with this Ukraine situation? Well, I think Russia has been preparing for this day for several years, well before even its uh, annexation and takeover of the Crimea. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. It's pretty clear to me that, uh, and to everyone, that uh, Mr. Putin knows that he can do the invasion. He can invade and take and annex and take all of Ukraine if he wants, and most Baltic states if he wants, mm-hmm. bringing the knowledge that all we can come back with is you know some pitiful sanctions against his oligarchs. Yeah. What I heard today from President Biden was frankly shocking. Uh, and uh, and what, what did you hear from uh, President Biden? Well, I, I heard, no, we're not going to sanction your oil and gas. No wonder. The United States is taking 400,000 barrels of oil every day from Russia on the woke coast on the Pacific. You killed the Keystone bloody XL pipeline. Now you have to worry about a dictator like uh, and a menace and a thug like uh, President uh, Putin. Uh, you have to rely on him for gas. No wonder you turtled. Forget sending in troops. The fact that you didn't sanction his oil and gas demonstrates to me and to Democrats that they are worried about something I'm very familiar with. I did many years media with U.S. media on, unlike Canadians who turtled and died and threw themselves over on energy prices, start messing with the gasoline prices in the United States and you watch how long you survive as a politician. Exactly. So I give I, American public a lot of credit for that. But what Biden did today is he knows that's going to face him come the midterms. And that's why he turtled and he basically threw Ukraine and democracy under the bus today. Exactly. And it's, it's really kind of pathetic because when you had a opportunity to create energy independence in the United States, you threw that away and you create moral jeopardy on the foreign policy side. It's all interrelated. And Canada should be learning the lesson as well. We have the opportunity again to be an energy superpower. And yet we're, we're not, we're, we're going in the opposite direction. It's, it's, it's just, you can't make this up, can you, Dan? No. And you expose the Canadian public, not just to uh, abject ridicule, which they deserve in many respects, because they've elected a group of people who do this kind of thing. You killed the Keystone Pipeline. You killed Northern Gateway. You vandalized the Trans Mountain Pipeline and with the help of your NDP friends in British Columbia, to the point where it's exposed the Canadian public to substantial financial risk, as well as basically saying a message to anybody who wants to invest in what the world needs more of today, oil and gas, Canada is not a place to do business. Who wants to invest in this yeah, country no, it, other than real estate? Absurd. And meanwhile, the real positive vision would be able to promote Canadian energy, as you've alluded to, yeah. create enormous opportunity for all Canadians, including Indigenous people. Um, it, it, it's an extraordinary opportunity if we had, if we had good governance. You know, in every interview that I do, and I, I appreciate when they're live, I say the exact same thing. Canadians are doing themselves in by destroying the very thing 
that allows them to enjoy the benefits of this country. By dumping on our oil and gas sector and by implication, every other resource sector and our manufacturing sector and driving up the price of everything, we are despoiling our present and our future. And so, you know, thank God for live interviews, but I do that everywhere, east, west, north, south, or whoever will listen. And people can decide not to listen to stuff and no, nothing here, nothing to see, but you do so at your own risk. And exactly. That, so on that note, I want to look strategically quickly um, about our democracy, your observations. We know about the key pillars or estates. We've got the legislatures across our country in our great federal government system. We have the executive, including the prime minister's office that is very concentrated. We have the judiciary. And of course, we've got the media. And wrapped around this is the current Canadian culture. And by culture, I mean how we listen to each other, our behaviors, how we debate each other, uh, respectfully based on the facts. I don't mean to do civics 101, but you've got enormous experience again. Are you concerned about the health of these institutions? What are you observing? Well, I think the institutions themselves have lost significant credibility in the minds of people as they become subservient to government. Look, like you're the not executive, you mean. Like they're, the, they're subservient to the executive. Well, I think ma ma mainstream media is, in fact, uh, purchased by and, and receives significant financial support from the Trudeau Liberal government. And so it's hard to see a scenario where there, it wouldn't be bias, or at least the perception of bias, uh, to use a maxim, but in a different sense. It isn't that they, you know, uh, that that these things should be free from intimidation or in any type of connection to the party that pays them. Is that they also have to be perceived as such, and I think rightly so. Canadians are complaining that when you you know sprinkle six hundred and ten million dollars for various media across this country, and they wind up with yeah. puff pieces that support the government, even though yeah. this is not acceptable, or a CBC with one point five billion a year. I mean, all these things I I understand. But I think we also have to accept that the bias is significant uh, and it is uh, certainly for many people a justifiable, uh, you know, lament that I think Canadians hold up their institutions, particularly the, the fifth estate, their media. So it's a huge problem when we don't have these institutions working well. This just doesn't, you know, it hasn't happened overnight. You know, it's interesting when you when you talk about the um, Emergency Measures Act, um, the announcement, as I recall, wasn't even made to the House of Commons. No. It was made in some other form. I, I couldn't quite recognize where, but um, I don't know. Do you remember where that announcement was made? And isn't that a significant symbol of the disrespect of well, the, I mean, House, yeah, the House I mean, of Commons? But parliamentarians allow that to happen all the time. Uh, you know, the fact that most of them don't show up and are doing so by, you know, Parliament by Zoom. Um, you know, I think we have to expect that the government has a lot of latitude. It's not the first time there's been a power grab. They did so, tried to do so financially at the outset of COVID. Uh, you know, it, the purpose of parliament is to hold the crown accountable. It's as simple as that. And members of parliament shouldn't be, uh, as Justin Trudeau's dad once called us, uh, voting machines, uh, or simply people who can be counted upon uh, to vote. They should be able to think, act, and speak openly about the things that they are most concerned with. I passed a significant number of pieces of legislation as a backbencher. That's right. Uh, and and I part of your legacy, because, Dan. Well, but, it, but legacy aside, the parliamentary system functioned, and it functioned understanding that very fragile relationship between accountability and the role of a member of parliament. Most members of parliament surrender 
their uh, their option on behalf of uh, the democracy which we value once they get the chance to come in oh the prime minister selected me i can't even speak unless i'm given permission and i well, i have to repeat the lines that are given to me by the so-called center my god can't they think and stand up for themselves what about their constituents there's well, a billion so. things out there that make every mp unique in their own way it's not seditious to take on your own government uh, but I think at the end of the day, our parliamentary process is, is is wounded and it needs help and it needs to go back to the day where the member of parliament could actually represent. I think what's related to this as well, would you agree, is the, the lack of basic understanding that Canadians have about our charter of rights and freedoms. It's almost like they've they've totally forgotten what happened at Runnymede and the Magna Carta and, and the whole bit. But let's take freedom of speech for an example. We know high order freedom of speech is all about the ability to peacefully criticize your government, yeah. to criticize the king and not be locked up. But that's what's going on here. You almost, am I being unfair in my remarks where you have a government that's trying to, trying to not only vilify peaceful protesters, they're trying to criminalize people. It's almost like, um, sub-school lawfare 101 here. Is that what's going <laughs> on, Dan? Well, it sounds like that. People are more interested in finding weaknesses in the system and exploiting those legal uh, opportunities and judgments that, you know, appear out of the fly. Mm -hmm. uh, we are truly in uncharted waters, to use a, a, an ironic statement. I was there in 1982, in April of 82, when the Queen uh, and uh, ministers uh, were on the dais on the, uh, you know, on yeah. uh, oh. the country, uh uh, precinct uh, on a very cold rainy day and to me that was symbolic of the things of the whole promise of the future it wasn't going to be perfect but at the end of the day i realized the state no longer had the right to wield power over my autonomy as a as a as a canadian and and uh, and then some it, that's completely changed now it's almost as if we've completely abandoned uh, you know the uh, the long history and and, and protect you talk you talk 12 15 i mean to me I think we have completely misunderstood and misrepresented for ourselves the powers that we have as individuals uh, against the state, against the kind of tyrannical moves that I saw Justin Trudeau commit last week. And for that reason, uh, I think maybe our teachers could do a bit better job. Rather than proselytizing climate change, maybe it's time you talk about uh, our rights, the Constitution, uh, and the fact that as individuals, we are in of ourselves as individuals, uh, as people within society, valuable and worth uh, upholding those uh, innate uh, rights that we all have. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about action. Um, I know that, Dan, you've, for fear of being described as tone deaf, you've described eloquently really about how our country's in trouble, in big trouble. So how do we move forward? How do we renew our country with great energy and courage without fear and bring about a new vision for our country. How do we, are there already things that come to my mind because people are looking for action and leadership that will move our country forward in a way that respects basic Democrat rights and freedoms, but enables our country to be great for, heaven forbid, I'll be accused of, of some kind of political agenda there, but creates a future for our children. We're all like, this is an amazing country with incredible people. How, how, what, what should we do, Dan? I think it's emerging now. Necessity is that mother of inventiveness. And I think the fact Canadians are now looking at 
a number of aspects of their country that they're not comfortable with. I think Canadians are becoming more engaged for the first time. This sort of laissez-faire approach of I'm fine, I, my house has got a decent uh, value to it, or you know the, the government has got lots of money to spend uh, in, in, in difficult times to pay for my, to my job or my pension. I think those are being seriously challenged and the strings that keep this country together and the things that keep Canadians happy and vi- you know, vital are slowly being lost. There's a demographic issue, obviously. We are an aging population. But beyond that, I think there is uh, certainly a need in this country of a new direction. Uh, and gone should be the days of uh, you know, leadership and parties that promote the idea of divide and conquer. Um, at least, I think we need a, a better understanding of uh, how to make our economy and how to make our parliament function. And that's to give the idea that everybody can participate. Anybody who has a concern, a grief, uh, should be able to express that. And to express that uh, doesn't necessarily mean sedition. It means quite the contrary, our ability to speak up and speak out and to enlarge, and, uh, as it were, the, the political tent in Canada. No one's doing that right now. And I think that's where uh, I, I'm not sure it's going to be easy to, to achieve, but I think a lot more Canadians are listening at a time in which they can't make ends meet. And they know that our fiscal and financial outlook is looking a lot more grim than at any point in the past. Indeed, and well said, uh, Dan. Um, I'm I'm so impressed by your insights, and uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion. The Honorable Dan Mateague, and you've been a friend of Frontier, and certainly we very much appreciate uh, your clarion call to not only for affordable energy, but also to be better citizens of our country. So thanks again, Dan. It's been an honor and pleasure. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. So thank you to everyone, for um, you as uh, Friends of Frontier who've joined us today. I encourage you to keep involved with the Frontier, and we certainly welcome your comments. Be sure to join us on March the 24th on Policy on the Frontier. We're delighted to have Frontier Senior Fellow Susan Martinuck, who will be joining us to explore her recent book, Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis. Please join us and invite others. And I want to remind you that Frontier is nonpartisan. We do not accept any government funding. And your support, your donations make our mission uh, possible. So, So thank you so much. That's it for today. And remember, without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking and nor are you free. Keep asking good questions and do not be afraid. And on behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us.